0: everybody you know in america who uses cocaine and the government that facilitates illicit trade but does nothing to stop the drugs coming into the country everybody has the blood of colombian people on their hands we have to either legalize cocaine or stop the cocaine trade
1: Welcome to Cambridge Forum, I'm Mary Stack, Director of Cambridge Forum, and today we are honoured to have with us both a stellar intellect and a remarkable human being, the world-renowned cultural anthropologist Wade Davis. Wade is joining us from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where he holds the leadership chair in cultures and ecosystems at risk. Wade has been described as a rare combination of scientist, scholar, poet, and passionate defender of all of life's diversity. In addition to writing 20 books, Davis has taken a and photographs, he's made documentary films, explored people, plants and places all over the planet. He was the National Geographic Explorer in residence for more than a decade and became an honorary citizen of Columbia in 2018. And that's actually what this program is devoted to today. Wade's latest book, Magdalena, River of Dreams, is all about the history of a very complex country and his love affair. With Colombia. So, most people's knowledge of Colombia is extremely limited, and it's, you know, some cartel drug soap that's on Netflix. It's not your view, obviously. You must be very, very proud of the country because otherwise you wouldn't be a citizen. Can you tell us how the love affair with Colombia began?
0: Look, Colombia has suffered for 50 years a violent conflict that left 220,000, maybe 260,000, nobody really knows, dead. Seven million um, internally displaced. For a time there was a kidnapping occurring every three hours of every day around the clock throughout the year. But always the Colombian people have been the innocent victims of a war caused exclusively by the flood of illicit money due to the cocaine trade. At no point during the war, uh, on all three sides, paramilitary, guerrilla, and military, were there more than 200, maybe 300,000 combatants in a country of 50 million. Most Colombians were innocent victims caught in a vice of war, individuals who had never seen, let alone used cocaine. To give you a sense of the scale of it, at the height of the Medellin cartel, With the Americans spending up to $60 billion a year fighting their war on drugs, um, the Medellin cartel was putting 80 tons of cocaine into America every month, $70 million of profits every day. The accountants back in Medellin were budgeting $1,000 a week for the purchase of elastic bands just to wrap the illicit cash. In the last year before the final signing of the peace agreement, in Cartagena in 2016, the FARC, the dominant leftist guerrilla group, down at that point to 6,000, maybe 8,000 cadre, mostly teenagers in search of a, a free meal, was nevertheless through extortion and drug trafficking, most of it cocaine, generating $600 million a year. So if you give me the Beverly Hills Boy Scouts and $600 million, I can wreak havoc in Southern California. And the reason this is so important is that as we uh, reduce Colombia to caricature through series like Narcos, we are forgetting that we are the engine that has driven this nightmare. It is consumption in of drugs in bars and barrooms across America that has fueled the flames of war. How would how would Americans feel if Canada had patterns of drug consumption and laws that facilitated the black market trade? yet implementation of those laws that was so slack that the trade was never seriously impacted, such that 85 million Americans would be forced to flee their homes. Well, that's what happened in Colombia. And yet despite that, through all those years of, of agony, Colombians maintained civil society and democracy, green their cities, sought restitution with indigenous people unlike any other nation state on the planet, created millions of acres of national parks and laid the, the, the foundation for an economic renaissance as young Colombians uh, forced to flee the country because of the conflict are coming back uh, equipped with uh, skills and every conceivable vocation coming home from every capital of the world. And people are within Colombia waking up to the fact that the richness of the country is in the, its natural beauty. Colombia is geographically, ecologically, botanically, the most rich country on earth. There is no place in Colombia more than a day removed from every known ecological niche to be found on the planet. You know, Colombia is by no means a place of violence and drugs. It is a place of colores y cariño, where the people have managed to endure um, this horror Um, because of the strength of character, because of their spirit of place, because of the immense generosity of heart that typifies the Colombian people. Look, at a time, just to put it in some kind of comparison, when uh, Americans have been treating refugees at the Mexican frontier, refugees that are for the most part fleeing political chaos created by the interventions of the Americans in the 1980s during the, the zealous crusade against the left- in countries like Guatemala and Nicaragua, and the chaos created today by the movement of cocaine through Central America, as America has sealed off the Caribbean, and yet Americans continue to savor and delight and do anything they can to get their hands on this awful drug. We turn away mothers and put their children in cages, frankly, whereas the Colombians who are faced in the wake of the peace agreement with a peace accord that has literally 500 or more clauses, the implementation of which will cost $45 billion at a time when oil prices have plummeted. And yet they've been managing to absorb not one, not a dozen, but 1.8 million desperate refugees from Venezuela who have not been turned away at the border. They've been welcomed. They've been housed, fed. The children have been schooled. The elders have been given medical care. Everyone's been given food. This is the most extraordinary humanitarian gesture that any nation state has done in the Americas in my lifetime. And yet Colombians don't get credit for that. They continue to get pilloried by this cliche uh, driven by our perception. You know, my friend Sandra Uribe, who's a paisa from Medellin, uh, grew up in Medellin at a time when, by the time she was 15, she couldn't distinguish the sound of thunder from the sound of Escobar's bombs going off and so the family sent her to live with her grandmother in Miami and she was made fun of for being from the land of Escobar by high school students in Miami whose main social activity was a pursuit of drugs with cocaine being their drug of choice. Sandra had never seen let alone use cocaine growing up in Medellin and so the book Magdalena River of Dreams takes the Magdalena the river that flows south to north the river that is both like the mississippi a corridor of commerce but it's also the fountain of culture you know the source of poetry and and, and literature and prayer and music uh and it tells the story of the nation through the metaphor of the magdalena valley which is home to 80 percent of, of colombians and generates 80 percent of the national economy and in a way its sociology is serendipity. I I traveled on five different journeys from the Macizo Colombiano, this rugged knot of mountains from which the Magdalena is born and the three cordilleras of the country are born uh, all the way to the mouth where the fishermen live in shacks on a jetty fishing by night with uh, hooks that fly out in the ocean on kites and they decorate their homes, their shacks with poetry And it tells the whole story of the country through the people that I met. And I would just turn up in a village and wait until I met someone who had something powerful to say that I thought the world needed to hear, which as Hemingway said, was the essence of storytelling. So in in that sense, a friend of mine, Hector Abad, who's one of Colombia's great writers, and uh, his book, Oblivion is simply incredible. And it's an account of the assassination of the wake of the killing of his father. You know in all the, the horror of Columbia over the last 50 years there have been a handful of assassinations that have truly shaken the entire country and the death of Hector's father, a social reformer, a physician, a benign, kind, lovely individual did shake the nation and Hector has been famously as a prominent journalist and writer known for his bitterness in the wake of that tragedy. That has left him with almost a love-hate relationship with Colombia. So when he read Magdalena and he wrote in the back of the book, you know, only Wade and Magdalena could allow me to love my country again. That's really what the book is all about. It's kind of a love letter uh, to a nation and a nation that made my life possible. You know, I, I, I first went to Colombia when I was 14 alone Uh, when my mother told me that Spanish was a language of the future. I was with a a small group of schoolboys, in fact, and and they were all older than I was. I was just 14, and they were billeted with uh, wealthy families and spent a sweltering season in the streets of Cali, Colombia. And I, by contrast, was billeted with a more modest family in the mountains above the city at the edge of trails that reached west to the Pacific. And I never saw the other Canadian lads, many of whom succumbed to what the Colombians called mamitis, or homesickness. And I felt, by contrast, that I had finally found home. And so then I returned six years later at the age of 20 as a young botanical explorer with a one-way ticket and a small pack of clothes and just two books, Lawrence's Taxonomy of Vascular Plants and Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And I believe that bliss was an objective state that one could achieve just by opening yourself to the world. And uh, both metaphorically and literally, I drank from any body of water, including tire tracks in the road. And I was always sick, but even that seemed to be part of it, you know, malarial fevers that would rise through the night and break with the dawn. Once on a day's notice, I embarked on the traverse of the Darien Gap, 250 miles of swamp and rainforest, and became lost for two weeks with no food, and finally emerged and got on a small plane for Panama City. I, I landed at the airport with my only the ragged clothes on my back all of which were saturated from vomit. The passengers had thrown up all over me by accident and uh, $3 to my name, nowhere to go, but I had never felt more alive. And so Columbia really matched uh, the intensity of my passions in a way that uh, I've always felt that I owed something to the country. And in a way, Magdalena River of Dreams is a love letter to the country, but it's also a statement to the world that Columbia is on the edge of an extraordinary resurgence of hope and that if we could clean up the Rio Magdalena which is what everybody says that would be the ultimate symbol that while the world may be falling apart Columbia is falling together.
1: That's beautiful. That's beautiful metaphor. You've been listening to Cambridge Forum as we continue our discussion of Magdalena, River of Dreams, A Story of Columbia with cultural anthropologist Wade Davis from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver where he holds the leadership chair in cultures and ecosystems at risk. So how important was your poetry uh, in terms of connecting with the people? Were you taken in easily or did you have to prove yourself?
0: Well, because, you know, the, the book I wrote, One River, which was translated by a Colombian poet and came out in 2002, a low point in Columbia's fortunes. And this was a book that recounted my travels with Tim Plowman, who was the protege of the legendary Harvard botanical explorer, Richard Evan Schultes, the man who sparked the psychedelic era with his discovery of the magic mushroom, so-called, in Mexico in 1938. And, uh, and Schultes had found his life in Columbia. He had spent 12 uninterrupted years in the Northwest Amazon. Mountains bear his name as do protected areas. I, you know, he 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 was um, for his students kind of a living link to the great naturalists of the of the 19th century, and so I wrote a book that was in part his biography. And I you wouldn't think that a book like that would hit a nerve, and but it came out at a time when not a decent word was being said about Columbia, and the nation was virtually a failed state. And suddenly there was a 700 page. Uh, book that in its own way was less a love letter than a map of dreams for two generations of young Colombians who were not able to travel within their own country. Oh. So the book, unbeknownst to me, took off and became more than a, than a cult book and a bestseller in the Spanish edition. It became a kind of an anchor of of hope for people throughout the country in all walks of life. But part of it is that we have to remember that the the, the consequence of the view of Colombia for the last fifty years. Think of the psychological uh, impact on young people who have been taught um, to to uh, uh, be ashamed of who they are, ridiculed. Uh, you know, look, Carolina Barco, the daughter of a former president, herself former Secretary of Foreign Affairs, at the time when she was U- uh, a Colombian ambassador to the United States of America was strip searched at Dulles Airport simply because she had a Colombian passport. And when she objected and presented her diplomatic credentials, the customs person dismissed her with an obscenity, barked as if from the mouth of a a dog. And so part of what El Rio did is it presented an an image, a story, a portrait of Colombia, absolutely in defiance of the false and dark cliches. You know, I even was in uh, Doha uh, getting out of a shower in the business class lounge in guitar when my cell phone rang some years ago and it was Marta Ochoa, who was a sister of the three Ochoa brothers who were one half of the Medellin cartel, only one of whom, Thavio, is imprisoned in Georgia in a federal penitentiary. And Marta, who, whose kidnapping provoked the movement, death to kidnappers that the cartel set in place, um, Marta was on the phone to ask me to go visit her brother Favio in Federal Penitentiary in Georgia because the book had meant so much to him. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it had that kind of impact, and so, uh, there, you know, in Colombia, it, it's given me a voice, and it's an important voice—not a naive voice—but somebody has to stand up and 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 hold the mirror to all that is good in Colombia. You know, Magdalena by no means um, uh, shies away. Uh, from the dark moments in recent Colombian history, but it explains them uh, in an empathetic way so people can come to understand what the motives are, what were people thinking, even as it um, celebrates what the river means to to Colombians. Let me just read you one short paragraph from Hermón Ferro, who is an incredible scholar, who is also the director of the one museum in the old colonial town of Onda, the one museum in the country, strictly dedicated to the Rio Magdalena. This is what he wrote to me. I'll never forget the moment when I first heard that the peace agreement had been signed in Havana. By chance, I was at the very confluence of the Rio Cauca and the Magdalena, and the Cauca is the other big arm of the Magdalena Valley. I was completely overwhelmed by what I can only call geographical emotion, a sense of space, as if the spirits were emerging from the earth. I stripped off my clothes and placed my head in the river. As I stood in the sun, the water dripping down my naked body, I began to weep. Rivers of tears flowed as I realized that my son could grow up in a country at peace. A river that has known every tragedy, that has carried the dead and all the misery of the nation that has suffered along with all Colombians, a river that I love so much. And there we were by its waters as peace came over the land." That's how Colombians feel about the Mother Magdalena. Colombia exists as a nation because of the river. Colombia is the gift of the Magdalena.
1: It's a bit like the Ganges, it's holy. Absolutely. So somebody called Maria Clemencia has written a, a question for you. What is your opinion on the peace accord?
0: It's a complicated question, and it's it's a precarious piece. Look, you have to go back in time. This this conflict, which began on the left during the heady days of Che Guevara, and, and there were leftist movements everywhere in Latin America, and they were focused on legitimate political aspirations. Colombia had was one of the few Latin American countries not to go through a process of, of land reform, for example, as Bolivia did in 1952 or Peru with decidedly mixed results in 1965. And yet, as the, the Soviet Union collapsed and as those guerrilla movements became more and more corrosive, and as the war became more violent, because at the time the Colombian military was not strong. And the paramilitary movement on the right grew up as individuals ostensibly trying to defend their own lands, defending their own lands from guerrilla groups that could come out of anywhere at any time. And since the paramilitaries saw that they could not be everywhere at all times, they had to have their presence somewhere at all times and everywhere at all times. And they settled on terror. So 80% of the most horrible murders were done by the paramilitaries who became a open marauding force, the third leg of a, of, a, of a stool of the Colombian war. And it was only in a sense when the DEA, which was seen as a police force dealing with drugs, and the CIA, which was seen as a political force dealing with the threat of communism, when the Americans kind of put that together in the concept of narco-terrorists, because with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 and 1991, Cuba lost all of its support. And although there has been rhetorical support for the leftists, a number of groups of which the ELNA and the, and the FARC were just two, rhetorical sort, so support from Ecuador and from Venezuela, very little material support. So the, the guerrilla groups had to fund themselves. And they began by robbing the local agricultural banks, the, the, the Caja Guerreria in in all the local towns. Then they turned to kidnapping and extortion. And And then they found their way into the lucrative drug trade, not exactly what revolutionaries had in mind, but that 's how by by the before the the final agreement was signed, FARC was making six hundred million dollars a year through illicit activities Now, in two thousand and two, the election of Alvaro Uribe, who was from the far right, uh, in a gesture sort of like Nixon going to China, he was able to formally demilitarize the paramilitaries in 2006. It was a lenient arrangement because they weren't about to lay down their arms to march off into a prison. It was no perfect solution, but at least it it removed them as an open marauding force. When Santos, who had been the defense minister for Uribe, became president and turned his energy toward peace, he negotiated the deal with the FARC, which again was a relatively lenient deal only in the sense that the, the FARC weren't about to come in from the forest to march into a jail. Then he, in a sense, made the mistake of putting the agreement to a referendum, which he didn't have to do, but it was narrowly, very narrowly defeated. It was an incredibly demoralizing um, step. And it was defeated because so many people had suffered, right? And so when, when the referendum failed, barely, Uh, Santos went ahead and was able to move it legally through Congress, which nevertheless irritated those who had voted against the agreement. And he then was given the Nobel Prize for Peace. And then in the coming election, because constitutionally he could not run again, a man, um, Duque, from the right, was able to split a divided field and become president. But he became president on a platform that called for the revision, if not the elimination of the peace agreement, even though murder rates in Colombia had dropped in one year to levels not seen since 1975. Now here's where it gets complicated. The federal state does not have the resources to get into all the lands that have been abandoned by the FARC, why? Because the agreement itself has hundreds of clauses, implementation $45 billion, oil prices collapse. the Venezuelan refugee crisis is extraordinarily expensive. And at the helm of government is not someone who truly believes in the peace process. And in these areas, in the absence of a federal presence, all the cartels have reemerged. And again, the civil society lifting up its head only to have that head cut off by those who do not want a presence of the federal state in those remote areas. The thing that comes down again and again and again is cocaine. Until governments have the wisdom to eliminate the illicit trade through the cleansing stroke of legalization, it's very difficult to see how peace and stability in its totality can come to Colombia. And this is why this book has an important resonance for Americans because this is not something happening in distant lands. There are today more people in more places using more cocaine than ever before. And everybody you know in America who uses cocaine and the government that facilitates illicit trade but does nothing to stop the drugs coming into the country, everybody has the blood of Colombian people on their hands. And that's something we should be very cognizant of. We have to either legalize cocaine or stop the cocaine trade. And since the latter has proved to be impossible despite the expenditure of over a trillion dollars and the mobilization of the entire military apparatus of the United States, the only solution is a legalization of a drug that is best compared to a drug used by your dentist to extract teeth. It's a horrible drug that comes from a plant known as the divine leaf of immortality. Let's get people using coca leaf and let's leave cocaine hydrochloride as an anesthetic to the dentist.
1: Wow. Very good question that's just come in before we have to kind of wrap things up shortly. How can America borrow some of the aspiration and hope you describe are embedded in Colombia?
0: Well, you know, I mean, I think, you know... People ask me all the time if I'm optimistic. Well, I respond, of course I'm optimistic. I'm a father. You know, pessimism is an indulgence, despair an insult to the imagination, orthodoxy the enemy of invention. You know, you, my father was not a, a Christian man, uh, but he was a deeply ethical man. And he used to say, this, you know, there's only one thing you need to know, son. There's good and evil in the world. Neither one is ever going to go away. So pick your side and get on with it. And so in all of my work, all of my 23 books have been driven by some sense of justice, you know? I mean, I hope that doesn't sound precious, but all of my books have had some some wrong that I'm trying to write, and it's what it's what drives me and keeps me going. And certainly in the case of, the, of Magdalena, River of Dreams, I, I just think it's sort of extraordinarily unfair that Columbia has borne the brunt of our drug obsessions and, and that we've narrowly escaped any kind of almost exposure for, and yet they have suffered so extraordinarily. And and, and it's just not right. And it's not fair. Um, One of the supreme ironies of that is that cocaine is a very valuable topical anesthetic. You know, there's an adage of pharmacology, there's no such thing as good and bad drugs. They're good and bad ways of using drugs. And for nose, throat, and ear surgery, cocaine hydrochloride is wonderful. And similarly, you know, the coca leaf, is the divine leaf of immortality. Now the the campesinos who are cutting down forests and growing coca are doing so because no other crop can compete. Coca yields a thousand times any other crop. So they're going to grow coca. So it behooves us to create a legal nutraceutical market, not for cocaine, but for coca. And to compare coca with cocaine is like comparing potatoes and vodka. I mean, one of the ironies of coca is that the efforts to eradicate the fields began 50 years before there was ever a drug problem. As physicians in Lima looked up into the Andes and saw social pathologies, and because issues of, you know, illiteracy, poor nutrition, and because issues of economic distribution and wealth challenged too closely the bourgeois foundations of their lives in Lima, they settled on coca as a culprit for everything. And yet during all those years, between the 1920s and 1975, nobody did a nutritional study of the plant. And had they done so, they would have discovered that the plant has a small, tiny amount of the alkaloid, analogous to the caffeine in a coffee bean. And yet it's also full of calcium, more than any other plant known to science, perfect for a diet that lacked a dairy product. It has a rack of vitamins so that if you take your daily coca leaf consumption, that's all you need in terms of vitamins. It has enzymes that enhance abilities of the body to digest carbohydrate at high elevation, making it perfect for a potato-based diet of the Andean um, region. So, you know, one simple assay showed that this was a plant used with no evidence of addiction uh, or or, or toxicity uh, by pre-Columbian peoples for over 4,000 years. So what we need to do is separate coca from cocaine and create a legal market for this incredibly benign, extraordinarily helpful stimulant, which is much milder than coffee or tea or chocolate even, but is incredibly more useful as a minor stimulant in our modern age. And so this is the kind of thing we can learn from traditional cultures you know, in, in South America and coca deserves to be celebrated, illicit cocaine condemned.
1: Thank you, Wade. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for listening to today's Cambridge Forum with world-renowned cultural anthropologist, author, and explorer Wade Davis. Cambridge Forum has been made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, also the Lowell Institute and Massachusetts Cultural Council. So thanks, everyone, for your support. Goodbye for now.